Good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church for part two of our series, Stop the Drift. Uh, Before we jump into the content of the series, I want to draw your attention just outside of the doors behind you in both of our locations in the lobby area, there's a Stop the Drift display that's set up. And the idea behind that is like, we're going to crowdsource some ways of stopping uh, financial, emotional, relational, uh, possibly spiritual drift by getting some of your ideas, some of the ways that God has prompted you to stop drift from happening in your life. So after worship today, head out into the lobby, fill out on one of those cards a way that you're stopping drift from happening. Hang it on a little clothespin in the lobby, and then in the second half of the series, you'll be invited to uh, take one down and like place it in a prominent place in your life where you're going to see it as a way to help encourage you to stop the drift. So a couple of examples that I saw out there, uh, one of them was every morning when I wake up, the first app that I open on my phone is the Bible app. So you can start to see how that stops the drift. Another person said that last week they installed accountability software on their phone to stop drift from happening. Uh, somebody else said, I go to church with a buddy or a group of buddies to make sure like we hold each other accountable to stop spiritual drift from taking place. These are awesome ideas. You have your own. Maybe it's those ideas that you're going to write down just one more time, but write them down and hang them up in the uh, display, the stop the drift display. Um, last week, we started this series and we, uh, we use this image of playing in the surf as a kid. You're jumping over the waves all afternoon, all evening. Uh, you're riding the waves back in. It's a good time. But a little bit of movement in the current, a little bit of drift that's happening over a long period of time can move a person a huge amount of distance, hundreds of feet down short. And you'll wake up, where am I? And how do we get back home? Remember, Today in part two, we're picking that image up again, except for when you're playing out in the water, sometimes the, sometimes the current isn't, isn't weak. It's, sometimes it isn't just a little current, a little drift over a long period of time. There are times when you're playing in the surf as a kid or as an adult, and the current becomes so powerful, so overwhelming. This rip current, this riptide just pulls you, and it pulls you not down shore. No, it pulls you out to sea. You guys know what I'm talking about. And the harder you try to swim against it, the harder you try to resist that, well, the more futile efforts you become. Because you get weak, you get tired, you can't keep it up for long. You need to get out. You need to get out of the current and you need to choose another way of life. Today we're talking about currents and we're not just talking about the riptide. We're talking about the currents. We're talking about the drift. We're talking about those powerful forces that are, that are in your life just pulling you away from maybe where God wants you to be, maybe where you want to be, what's good for you. This is going to be a silly example, and I cleared it with my kid ahead of time, but I'm, going to, I'm just going to jump right in because some of you know what I'm talking about. Youth sports, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to, this is not like confessional time. My family has been involved in youth sports for about seven years, and for almost all these seven years, I haven't been like the, the primary youth sports person, parent, right? Like that was my wife. I was a supporting role. I was, uh, I was a come alongside, you know, I'd of course participate, you know, but I wasn't the person who brought the orange slices in the Capri Sun. I wasn't the one who bore the emotional and, and, and mental load of like keeping a million things on the checklist all in a timely order and managing that on our calendars or in my head. I, I was a supporting role until recently, <laughs> Until we tried a new sport, and I had a fresh start. 
A fresh start to get way too overly invested in this entire thing. We tried running. We tried cross country. I was, I never did this. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm wildly enthusiastic about it. And that's my contribution. I immediately become like team dad. I'm the one, I bring a table to the meets. That's the worst job you can do at the thing, by the way, because like you're the last one to leave at that point. You're just waiting for the orange slices and the bananas to like get taken away. Just like, here, have another one. You know, like, let's get moving. I'm so enthusiastic about this thing. I'm watching. It's a Saturday meet. I'm like running to different places to like cheer all the team on, you know, let's go. I lose my voice on a Saturday afternoon, which is like a cardinal sin for a preacher, right? I'm caught up in this thing. I volunteer to show up at the finish line, something that is affectionately known as the puke shoot after. They didn't tell me that until they also handed me a pair of plastic gloves and said, this is what we call this thing. Your job is to move the high school runners from here over here so they don't just drop down and trip everybody else as they come across. And I learned firsthand why they called it that way. But you guys, I'm into it, right? I'm swept up into this thing. I set a workout on my watch. And during, during the first meet, I got so into it. I burned like 250 calories. I had an average heart rate of 130 beats per minute as a spectator. (laughs) I get caught up in it. Some of you maybe gotten involved in youth sports at some level. You know what it's like. You get caught up in something. So I had a conversation with my wife recently and we, we just talked. We asked a hard question. Do you think our kids know that we are actually more enthusiastic about their spiritual life and their walk with Jesus than they are youth sports. You get so caught up in the current and you don't even realize how powerful and how overwhelming it can be to just pull you out to sea. I've known people, men, men and women, who, who experience this, this holy vocation to stay at home and raise their kids. And I'm not saying that's the norm for everybody, but I, I am observing that it is God's call for some people. And I've talked to people later on who said, you know, I experienced that, that call. I've experienced that, the burden, the vocation, the whatever, whatever you might call it. And, and the temptation, the current around is, is too heavy. It's too thick. You know, make a little extra money. I could buy some more Christmas presents, go on an extra trip, check off all the things on the list that culture, society, whatever, the current tells me I need to do. And it's, it is like it's pulling me away from my purpose. It's pulling me away from, from what God has for me to do. It's easy to get swept up. It's easy to get caught up into it. Another story. Somebody... Not a lot of friends in high school, not a big social gathering around, but college, man, college is another story. There's invitations, they're saying yes to just about everything. There's like opportunities. I'm getting, I'm getting invited, I'm getting pulled along to these different things. And I show up and somebody puts an adult beverage in my hand. And she goes, for the first time, I chose to do something illegal. And it, it, it wasn't just like, that day, that event, that party kind of thing, it, it became like, like the defining characteristic of my personality. It became my friend group. It 
swept me up and defined my college experience. And, it, and today's about like naming that thing and going, there are some forces just so powerful that they sweep us out to sea. And maybe it's not one thing, maybe it's the compilation of a hundred things, of family commitments, of general busyness, of just an overload of stuff in our lives. Corey Ten Boom is this woman who saved countless lives, a Dutch woman uh, in this resistance movement during World War II. And she's got this awesome little saying, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. It's a powerful, powerful current. And today is about naming what those currents are so that we can get out of them and we can choose our purpose. Better yet, choose God's holy purpose for you. And the good news for us is that we're not alone. There's a story in the Old Testament of the Bible, a story of Daniel. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 2, and we're not going to see Daniel be the one to stop the drift today. We're not going to see Daniel as the one in that powerful current today. No, no, no. It's about somebody who is much more influential, much more powerful, at least at that time. So Daniel chapter 2, I'll give you a moment. You can look it up in your Bible app, on a paper Bible. Those are a thing too. By the way, somebody else filled one out. When I'm doing devotionals, I use a paper Bible to minimize distraction. Stop the drift. It's awesome. I love it. Um, Daniel chapter 2 though, it starts off in the King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He has these horrible dreams. He's tormented by these things. Uh, keeping them up. Recurring dream every single night. And he gets it in his mind that he needs to go to his, his magi, his wise men, his magicians, his enchanters to not only interpret the dream, but he ups the ante for this thing in particular. And he goes, no, no, I want you guys to tell me what the dream is first and then interpret it for me. And all the wise men, all the enchanters, all the magi, the magicians, they gather together and they're like, king, nobody can do that. King, actually, they say, only the gods can do that, and the gods don't walk around among us. And so the king goes, fine, if, if you can't tell me what the dream is, along with this interpretation, I'm just going to have all you guys rounded up, and I'm going to be done with this whole magi program that we learned about last week, this three years long intensive study. We're going to be done with the whole thing, and you guys are all just going to disappear. And one guy, Daniel, comes up again. One guy says, hey, uh, uh, King, before we disband the program that I just graduated from, uh, b before we end this whole thing, would you give me a shot? And Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king asks him, okay, not only the interpretation, but start off, tell me what the dream was that I had. And Daniel starts off in Daniel 2, verse 27, and Daniel replied, no. I mean, this is courage, right? I think that courage is the right word for it. <laughs> Maybe something else. Daniel says to probably the most powerful person in the world at that time, no. <laughs> he elaborates, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he's asked about. But there is a God. I love this. I love that line. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dreams, the visions that pass through your mind that you are lying in bed are these. And before we, before we go into it and before we read some of the next line and like what the dream was, I just want to call out the, the courage that 
the resolve that Daniel has to double down on his God. You see what he's doing? He's saying, no, 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 no magician, no enchanter, no wise man, nobody like me, no Dan- Daniel can't do this. He doubles down and says, but there is a God. And you realize what he's doing. It's absolutely out of his mind. Because if he does get the whole thing right, he doesn't get the credit. God gets the credit. But if probably everything is wrong and he can't guess what this recurring dream that the king has is, well, the king's not going to come after his God's head. It's his neck that's on the line. But Daniel, Daniel resolved in God, like from last week, God shows up and shows off. And so Daniel kind of clears his throat and he says, the dream. Verse 31, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze. It's iron leg. You can kind of see this diminishing value as we go down. It's like hashtag leg day, right? It's like almost of no value whatsoever to any. Legs of iron. <laughs> it's feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. So uh, recap, uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay kind of mixed together. Verse 34, while you were watching, king, a rock was cut out, but not of human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like, uh, like chaff on a threshing floor, like dust, a Thanos snap kind of moment, right? Like it all kind of goes away. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And at this moment, the king replies. Well, I don't think he actually does reply. He's got to like pick his jaw up from the ground. Daniel got it. He nailed the dream. As for the interpretation, it doesn't take a degree in the history of human civilization to pick up on what some of these figures, materials, and kingdoms represent. Daniel unpacks it a little. He's like, you king, right? You're the head made out of gold, the most valuable of anything in the entire statue. You king, of course, are the most valuable, running the most valuable, the biggest, the best kingdom that the world has seen up to this point. You king are the MVP of your team, whatever team you might be on. Kind of feeds his, his ego a little bit. That's you, of course. And the king's like, of course, that's me. I get it. <laughs> and there was another one that's a silver, bronze, iron, clay kind of mixture. And you take like a world histories class and you're going, in that era, there was the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, gold. The empire that replaced that one, silver, Persia, 
the empire that replaced that one, bronze, were the Greeks that came along. Uh, temporarily, the Gauls invaded Rome, sacked Rome for a little while before Rome came back and pretty much conquered the rest of the known world to them at that time, clay. And then a rock comes, right? Not cut by human hands. No, no, like otherworldly from a different place. Like this rock sent from heaven itself comes and crashes into those clay feet, that Roman empire. And the rock started growing this mountain that took over and filled the earth. And, and nobody questioned its value, but yet it never diminished, not for a second. And what's incredible to me is that the story is told about a king entering this kingdom, God, Jesus, entering the world that he had made during this Roman Empire, it strikes me that, that he poses this 500 years before said empire would ever exist in the first place. I mean, you guys, it's a, it's a powerful prophetic word of like what's coming. It's also powerfully, not the point. Just like last week when we read Daniel chapter 1 and he comes in and he thought he was going to die on this wilderness trek in exile, carted off to, to Babylon. And then he gets there and there's a school program, there's a meal plan, there's a job provided to him and everybody's high-fiving each other and Daniel says, but I'm not going to eat that. Just like we said last week, that wasn't a diet plan. It wasn't the point. That was a, a resolution for God to show up and show off God was the point behind it. Like sometimes, sometimes we do this with prophecy. We, we do this with like these stories in the Bible. We get caught up. We get swept up into that particular current. We want to like decode the Bible, right? We want to like read it maybe like every seventh letter or like translate it into this language and then back into this language, kind of reverse engineer. And like that's how we knew that like World War II would happen. And that's how we do know that like World War III is going to happen and like the rise and fall of Bitcoin and everything else in between. Like we do this thing, you know? Not anybody in the room, not anybody watching online, of course. But we kind of get caught up, we get swept up in a current of like, I want to know, I want to know like what's, I want to know what's coming up next. And when we get a little prophecy like this one that kind of predicts the rise and, and fall of empires, I mean, it's pretty easy to start to see God as like this crystal ball that we can like look into to see the future. And, and I want to just name for us not only that's not helpful, that's not the point. That, that's confusing the symbol with the message. Uh, I, I guess another way to describe it is it's, it's confusing together. You could think of it as like the provision with the provider. You see, not just this time, but God throughout Scripture, he tells his people, he makes these prophetic declarations. He, he, he pulls back the curtain and he shows them a little bit about what is to come. But his point in all of that, make no mistake, is not just so that somebody would know what the future holds, but the point is so that we would know who holds the future. God's point in making the unknown known is so that we would know who is previously unknown. 
we're going to come back to this Corey Ten Boom quote because it's like a Corey morning. Like that's the theme for the morning. I don't know why, but she's got this other quote uh, where she says, never be afraid. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And you think about some of the life predicaments, some of the resolutions that she had to make saving Jewish lives during World War II. And she has the courage and the resolve to say, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The point of prophecy is a person and his name is Jesus. That that rock that came from this other world and smashed into human history, a rock like that could be known, could speak, could teach us, could change us. That rock of faith, Christianity as a whole, I mean, Daniel's just making this observation. He's going, that it isn't an idea that's like out there somewhere. It isn't a, it isn't a philosophy where we kind of like, we give intellectual assent to and we agree with. And so that's why we're good Christians. It isn't even limited to a set of ethics. You know, follow the Ten Commandments and then we could be good Christians. It isn't also a religion whereby we experience and and pull certain religious levers, rites, and rituals, and then become good Christians. That rock that came from this other world, from heaven itself, and smashed into human history. Christianity is a relationship, is a miraculous, intimate relationship to make the unknown God known. And the reason why we tell this story and we keep on telling the Daniel 2 story is the rock didn't just smash into human history. He smashes into your history too. (laughs) He collides with my history, with my life too. Sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes we're just doing what kings do, running our kingdoms as best we can. Sometimes we're even wildly successful at it. It's a true story of a man named Alfred. He was born in 1833 to Russian parents. His dad was very successful, uh, machinist. He had a shop that Alfred grew up in. In a fairly prominent, well-to-do family, upwardly mobile. He studied, uh, he studied chemistry officially, but in his meantime, uh, in addition to his native Russian, he learned English, Swedish, uh, French, and I think it was Italian. I mean, just a brilliant, brilliant man. And it, it seems like, like the kind of guy that everything he touches turns to gold. Uh, His dad, not the story, Uh, his dad had this uh, successful machinist shop, you know, rise and then fall. His dad ends up in uh, financial ruin, obscurity. He declares bankruptcy. You know, his his dad loses, loses everything. No, 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 not Alfred, though. Alfred continues his whole life. He's an inventor. He builds stuff. 
He's got patents. He sells patents. He becomes one of the most successful people of his time. One of the, one of the most wealthy people of his time. And then he gets hit by a rock. <laughs> and some of you have had that kind of life-changing experience. He's, he's being swept along in this current of success, not even knowing he's being carried out to, out to sea. A French newspaper Here's a story of his brother Ludwig who dies, except for the French newspaper mistakenly reported not that it was Ludwig, but it was Alfred that died. And so they run a lengthy obituary, again, not of his brother who was actually dead, of Alfred. And they write in the obituary the headline that he reads right there in front of him. His own obituary for the world to see in the headline is, The Merchant of Death Has Died. Because of one of his inventions, TNT, dynamite. Alfred creates it as a chemist, as a way of exploding mountains and hills and rocks to create railroads and other roads to connect people together. And you can kind of see what it was actually used for. In war, Alfred's inventions became prized to the point of making him an extraordinary wealthy man. I mean, he's rethinking everything. Nebuchadnezzar gets hit by a rock from out of nowhere, and he's rethinking everything. He's been drifting along. He's been caught up in the current of just doing what kings do, being the biggest, baddest, most powerful king there is. And then something surprising happens. When Daniel tells them the dream... Along with the interpretation, verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell, prostrate before Daniel, and paid him honor, and ordered that an offering, an incense, be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. And God is once more showing up and showing off. One more time. It's not just that rocks come and smash into kingdoms. It's not just that God breaks into history. It's that if we would be open to observing it, he is also breaking into your history. It's not just that Nebuchadnezzar had a kingdom. It's that you have a kingdom. You have influence. You have resources. You have a kingdom that you're managing, that you're stewarding on someone else's behalf. And what, what Nebuchadnezzar really realized is something that he knew from birth already. Like he knew, he just buried it so, so down deep that he thought that he could escape it or he thought that he could just ignore it for long enough. And, and, and what he knew was that what Daniel revealed to him that day, the mystery that his kingdom actually has an expiration date on it. Like, like kingdoms come with an end. Someday the gold head will transition and will expire and will give way to a silver chest and arms. Like his kingdom will end. And so like, I don't want to be the bad guy 
of smashing into your statue, smashing into your life, but just to like make this observation as you're coasting along, as you're swept up in the current, like your kingdom has an end point to it. Like, like, like think about it for just a minute. Every job that you have or will have, no matter how much you treasure it, no matter how much you get your identity from it, your job, it has an end date. And maybe you know it, maybe you don't. Maybe it will be on your terms, I hope it is, or maybe it won't. But every vocation, every job that you have has an end date attached to it. Every marriage starts with these words, till death do us part. Every child is raised so that one day she or he will leave his father and mother. Go off and be his own man. Go off and be her own woman. You have a kingdom. And what Nebuchadnezzar learned, what we learned, is that it has an end date, an expiration date. And the question is really this. For our morning, for our week, for our lives, the question is, how will you use your kingdom in light of the kingdom that never ends? How do I use, how do I use my kingdom in light of the kingdom that never ends? Alfred reads his own obituary where he's called the merchant of death has died. And he decides this is not going to be how I'm remembered. This is not going to be my life and my legacy. And so he sets up uh, an award. He sets up uh, a prize. And he takes his whole kingdom. He, 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 takes, he takes his patents. He takes his, uh, his inventions. He takes his wealth. He takes his entire net worth. And he pushes it into a prize, not for war, but peace. Alfred Nobel, the Nobel Peace Prize, annually gives out these awards for uh, literature, for medicine, for physics, of course, yes, for chemistry. He asked himself the question that I hope all of us are asking, how am I going to use my kingdom in light of the kingdom that will smash into this world, into my world, and keep on growing and never end? Because the truth is, I get to play, you get to play a supporting role in the greatest story ever told. I get caught up with stuff all the time. Some of you guys know me and I'm a fairly passionate person with very short-lived hobbies, so there's that. But I get caught up with stuff, swept out to sea with the latest thing, whatever it is that I'm just really into. And I am so grateful, so grateful that Jesus is smashing into my life uh, through a, a small group around here at Encounter Church who can remind me of what's most important. I am so grateful uh, for leaders to speak in the lives of my kids when I'm swept up in the latest thing and they can remind me, no, no, this is what's most important. And they can speak truth and love into my life. I'm so grateful that I have a church community like this to help me coming back to that question. How do I use my kingdom in light of the kingdom that never ends? How do I get to play a supporting role in the greatest story ever told? And the best part, the ending, 
Verse 48, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? Administrators over the province of Babylon. While Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And the wise men never forgot about him. They kept looking, they kept waiting, they kept watching for the rock to smash not only into human history, but into our history. And when they saw it coming, they brought their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and laid them down before the mountain, Jesus, that would never fade and never diminish and never give way. That's our story. Next week, we see how they, uh, they repay him for saving their lives <laughs> by trying to have him killed. <laughs> I you to stand up. Let's pray to God together. God, you are telling an incredible story. And God, we're humbled that you would include us in a part of that. Lord, this story that you're telling isn't an idea, isn't just a philosophy, a religion, an ethic to live by. God, it's an invitation to know you. It's an invitation to do life with you, with all of your hope, with all of your courage, with all of your resolve. God, some of us right now, we're being swept out to sea. We find ourselves in a current. We don't know what to do. God, your, your hand reaching out is an invitation. Grab a hold of us. Smash into our lives. Disrupt us in a way that only you can. Jesus, we pray all of this in your resurrection power. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.